you are listening to the Hippie Haven podcast. I'm Callie, a zero waste activist and public speaker, creator of Bestowed Essentials, a line of eco-friendly home and body products, owner of Hippie Haven Shop, an online zero waste store with a physical store in South Dakota as well, and of course, host of this Hippie Haven podcast. If you're new here, I release an episode every Wednesday, which you can get instantly downloaded to your phone for easy listening by subscribing to this podcast on any of the major podcasting apps. The show notes and full transcript for every episode are available on my website, hippiehavenpodcast.com. You can also learn more about me on the website or by following along on Instagram at hippiehavenshop. Before we get started, I want to remind you that my zero-waste product manufacturing business, Bestowed Essentials, is in the running to win a $50,000 small business grant from FedEx. We actually made the top 100 finalists in last year's competition out of over 13,000 applicants around the U.S. And this year, we are going to win, but we need your help. One of the major deciding factors is the number of votes each small business receives. So I'm asking every single one of my listeners to please go vote for us right now. The link to vote is in the show notes. It's also in our Instagram bio. And then save that link and set a reminder on your phone to vote every day until March 8th. If you're passionate about our mission to make a zero-waste lifestyle more affordable and accessible, please also share our voting page on your social media and encourage your friends to vote daily for us as well because we really, truly cannot do this without your support. My guest today is Tori Dunlap, the badass creator of her first 100K. Tori saved $100,000 by the age of 25 and has since quit her corporate job in marketing to now help thousands of women make more, spend less, and fight the patriarchy. She's sharing all her best tips on saving, investing, budgeting, paying off debt, lowering recurring bills, increasing credit score, negotiating your salary, and more. So let's get into today's episode. So Tori, tell me about yourself and your background and her first 100K. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So her first 100K is financial guidance for millennial women. So I had a really great financial education growing up. I was lucky enough to have parents who educated me about money and grew up uh, starting my own business at age nine, learning how a checking and savings account worked, learning how to pitch myself, all of those things, and also learned how to negotiate from my dad and learned how to balance a checkbook and budget from my mom. And so I knew the business thing was rare growing up. I knew that that was not normal to have this business that I started at age nine, but I thought, okay, everybody knows not to overspend on credit cards and everybody knows how to invest. And of course, I realized very quickly that that wasn't the case and that especially for women, we're at a severe disadvantage when it comes to financial education, financial guidance. And so really, I founded Her First 100K as a resource and as uh, an actionable guide to money. So budgeting, saving, investing, negotiating basically giving women the financial education they need in order to fight the patriarchy in order to level up their money. And yesterday was actually the first anniversary of her first 100K. And I've been following you for, I think, almost this entire year. Tell oh my me gosh. about what you've accomplished in 12 <sighs> months, because it's so incredible. 
It's pretty insane. I literally, right before you and I jumped on this call, I was talking to my dad and we just did a quick run through of this past year and it's been insane. So I've been growing my business for three years on the side and I rebranded my business into her first 100K a year ago yesterday. Um, in that time frame, I was on the front page of Market Watch with over a million views and 12 republishings. I've been featured on CNBC five different times. I've been featured on Forbes, Yahoo, The Cut, uh, Business Insider, NASDAQ, and the big one, Good Morning America, last fall. Um, I hit my goal of $100,000 saved at 25. That's kind of how her first 100K was born, was, was my journey to hitting that 100K. So I hit that nine months ahead of schedule. And I also figured out a couple of days ago that I actually did a second 100K last year, too. I uh, made 100K in income for, my first, uh, for the first time. Um, and then I took my business full time. So her first 100K was a side hustle that I grew for three years in addition to my nine to five job in marketing. So um, in November, I quit my full-time job to run her first 100K uh, as my full-time job. And it's been absolutely incredible since I've done that. A super scary decision, but very, very worth it. And it's just been such a crazy year. I've helped over 50,000 women budget their money, invest their money, save their money. And um, it's my favorite thing to do in the entire world. And I'm just so, so lucky. And I feel so happy. Like I'm so happy uh, with where I am in my life right now and the impact I'm able to have. And it's just been, it's been such a crazy ride so far. And I remember that Good Morning America feature. It was incredible. And I loved watching the video. Um, I also remember you got a lot of negative feedback from oh, it yeah. too. A lot of online <laughs> trolls, of course. And yet something that, that you talked about in the video and then something, of course, that the trolls really focused on was your privilege and your yeah. ability to have saved $100,000 by age 25, because that is unfortunately so incredibly rare for most people. Right. Um, so I, I love and I love the way that you you are so open about your privilege. So I want to hear more about your background and about the systems and opportunities that were in place for you to let you reach that point and then what you're doing to try to help other people get there. I so appreciate that question. Thank you for asking it. Um, that's the first thing I like to acknowledge is that I do have some privilege. I'm a cisgendered white woman who grew up in a middle-class family and who's an only child and who has super supportive parents who are very, you know, financially responsible. So the fact that I grew up with any sort of financial education is a privilege. And I realized that as soon as I started having conversations with people who didn't have that. And so with that privilege for me came the responsibility to share that with others. Um, and then I was also able to graduate college debt-free. It wasn't because my parents wrote me a check and were like, Hey, go have fun. Or, you know, took money out of a trust fund. Right. It was like, we very much sat down together and figured out how we were going to pay for college together. So I worked three jobs while going to school full time. I graduated in four years with two bachelor's degrees while working those three on campus jobs. I worked um, jobs during all of my breaks, whether those, those were holiday breaks or summer breaks. Um, and I think 90 to 95% of my money went to, went to paying for college. And then I got tens of thousand dollars in merit scholarships. I also had parents who were in a financial position to be able to also help me um, and contribute money to my college education. So they didn't pay for all of it. They didn't just write me a check. It was very much a collaborative process. But I like to be the first to acknowledge that I know I would not have hit 100K, at least not that quickly, um, had I been saddled with student debt. And so I like talking about that. I like being upfront and honest about that. I like you know, showcasing, yeah, there was some privilege, of course, but also 
I worked really hard. I was saving a big percentage of my income. I learned how to negotiate my salary. I learned how to invest. I, I didn't blow it. You know, I, I had privilege and I, I also worked really hard. It was both. Do you think it's possible for somebody without any of the privileges that you've had to be able to also save $100,000? Yes, most definitely. Um, it might take you longer or it might look different. I mean, the reason why my brand is called Her First 100K is it's your first 100K in whatever area of your life you want it to be. Maybe that's 100K in debt paid off. Maybe that's 100K salary. Maybe that's 100K in your business. Maybe that's 100K net worth, right? So 100K can be whatever you want it to be. And it's a goal that I work towards, of course. It wasn't, it wasn't like it just magically happened. But it's also a goal that you can work towards. It doesn't have to be my 100K saved. It can be the, any of the 100Ks I just mentioned. And the thing to keep in mind, and this is why you know it's her first 100K, is that we want you to have hopefully many 100Ks after that. But the joke is always that the first 100K is the hardest. So if we can get you in there doing the work, saving money, paying off debt, you know, building your wealth and negotiating your salary, uh, all of those sorts of things, you're going to set yourself up for success, hopefully for your second, third, you know, 50th, her first 100K or your 50th 100K. So I, I'm really committed to, to giving you actionable resources in order to help you figure that out. So you don't feel so lost and confused as you're going throughout the process. I think when a lot of people think about financial coaching or money advice, they think of Dave Ramsey oh, and yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on Dave Ramsey and your recommendations for anybody who is utilizing or has utilized his services or advice in the past. Can I curse on this podcast? Yes. Go Amazing. for it. Dave Ramsey is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I am just going to be very clear about that. Um, I, I will state first, he has made a huge impact for millions and millions of Americans. He has changed a lot of people's lives. A lot of his work has been very impactful. So I do like to acknowledge that, um, you know, him and Susie Orman have kind of paved the way for these kind of quote unquote personal finance experts like me. However, there have been multiple um, instances of him being publicly misogynistic. If you actually go to his website and on his website, there's a blog post, there's an article about how to hire people. And there's two things that stand out to me in that article. The first is that he requires your spouse to come in and interview if you want to work for his company, which feels weird. Uh, and the second thing is that he requires you to turn over your bank statements, your credit card statements, um, because, quote, broke people are desperate and we don't want to hire desperate people. Um, so both of those for me are huge red flags. He also um, uses very judgmental shaming language. I don't think you should ever have to profit off of making somebody hate themselves. I don't think you should ever profit off of self-hatred. And what Dave Ramsey does is he shames you. He tells you that, um, you know, your debt is all your fault and that, uh, you know, you're shitty if, if you're in debt, right? And he, he shames you to the point where you feel terrible about your choices. And then magically, oh, look, here's this product that you can buy of Dave Ramsey's in order to get yourself out of debt, right? And so... I, I and so many other people are kind of building this new personal finance, new movement, new guard of personal finance experts who are trying to give you actionable advice without ever making you feel bad about yourself, right? And also acknowledging that 
yeah, maybe you made some, some poor financial choices, but also there's a lack of education. And in addition, we have systemic issues that are keeping most people from becoming wealthy. It's not because you're buying too much avocado toast. It's not because you're buying coffee. The reason you can't afford a house is not because you're buying coffee. It's maybe the trillion dollar student debt crisis or the fact that, you know, Wages are at an all-time low, and yet cost of living is at an all-time high. It's maybe because um, you're a woman and you get sexually harassed almost every day when you walk down the street or when you're at work or you get paid less, right? So there's all of these these issues that affect our money that we also need to be talking about in addition to learning how to budget and learning how to pay off debt. So if you consume his content and it's helpful to you, um, fine. But I think there's so many other better resources out there that are more diverse. Women, people of color, people from the LGBTQ community, people who are disabled, people who are having honest money conversations and giving you actionable resources without making you feel like shit. And I'd love to, to learn more from you about how American women have been financially oppressed in the yeah. very recent past and how it is continuing today. Let's talk more about that. Yeah. So, um, the, the a statistic I always think of is that it took until 1974 for a woman to open, be able to open a credit card in her own name. She had to have until it's either 74 or 76. She either had to have her husband or a male family member co-sign on her credit card. She could not open a credit card by herself. My mom was born in 62, right? So it's, it's not that far off. Um, the same thing with a business loan. It, it was the early 80s before women could open a business loan in their own name, right? And then, of course, the gaps. We know about the wage gap. We're talking about that a lot, as we should continue to talk about 78 cents to a man's dollar. It's even worse if you're a woman of color. But the things we're not talking about as much are things like the opportunity gap, the investing gap, the wealth gap. So women either wait longer to invest or don't invest compared to men. So we're taking less money because of the wage gap. It's growing at a slower rate because we're either not investing it or waiting. And then on average, women live seven years longer than men do. So taking less money, growing at a slower rate, and we're expected to live longer on that money. How the hell does that make sense? Right? So there's so many conversations that we need to be having about how money affects women differently. And another example, um, if you know about the FIRE community, it's it stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. There's, these are like mega frugal people who are trying to usually retire before the age of 40. Um, but so much of their advice is amazing. And also a lot of their advice is very gendered where they say, you know, don't take Ubers, don't take a car, bike to work, uh, bike to, you know, different places. Just simple advice like that doesn't take into account that, okay, it d gets dark now at 530. And so I can't bike home because literally that's a threat to my safety, right? If I'm a woman, I live in Seattle, I live in a big city. Even if you don't live in a big city, if you are biking home in the dark, you are now putting yourself at risk, right? So those are the kind of conversations that we need to be having where like, yeah, Ubers might be expensive, but sometimes they're absolutely necessary to my life or owning a car might be more expensive than having a bike, but I have to make sure I'm getting home safely and not, you know, assaulted. So these are the kind of conversations, again, that we need to have where everything, um, everything affects our money, uh, whether that's your gender, your sexual identity, your, um, if you have a disability, right, all of these things affect, affect how you have to manage your money and how you're spending your money.
And you often mention that there's, there's four money mistakes that you see millennials making. What are those four mistakes and how can we, how can we remedy them? That's a great question. I'm trying to remember the exact four I mentioned. Um, <laughs> I think you're pulling from a business insider article I wrote. Um, uh, the first one is that your money needs to be in a high yield savings account. I'm happy to send you the link to it that you can put in the show notes, but your money right now is earning you like 0.01%. It's literally pennies when a high yield savings account as of this podcast taping could be earning you 1.5, 1.82% on your money, which is a huge dramatic difference between again, 0.01 and something like 1.5 or 1.6. So that's a really easy transition, a really easy change that you can do. Um, another great thing to keep in mind is that, yeah, we need to start investing. Um, I see too many women put a lot of their money in savings or checking, which is amazing, but then they, you know, that that's not doing anything for you in the long term. Really, the only money that should be in a savings or checking account, a checking account should really just be your expenses, right? The money you're going to have to spend to live your life. A savings account should include your emergency fund, as well as any like short-term savings goals. Like maybe you want to go to Cabo next year, right? That needs to be in a savings account. Pretty much everything else we need to consider um, should be you know, locked away for retirement. We need to be investing as soon as possible because compound interest is super important. Compound interest, again, is like, it's it's starting early. It's getting at least a little bit of money in there and then watching it grow over time. Um, I'm trying to remember my other two. Now I can't remember them off the top of my head. There's so many different things that I can talk about. But really, those are the big two that I that I can think of right now. And we are going to going to talk about it all for sure um, with investing, investing. I'm a millennial female. Investing sounds scary as fuck. Like yes. you always hear about like Sierra and I don't even know where I don't know very much about investing, but you hear about stock market crashes and people right. losing their entire life savings and all of this. So make investing less scary for people um, like me. Happy to do that. So actually you are not alone. The number one reason women do not invest is out of fear, fear of doing it wrong, fear of losing their money, fear of, yeah, all of that. So if you've heard investing is gambling, that's not true. That's a myth. That's just not true. There are more risky options that you can take. And any person who's educating you about money, who is smart and worth listening to is going to offer way less risky options, more stable options for you. Here's the hard truth. You will never be able to retire if you don't invest. I want to say that again. You will never be able to retire if you do not invest. Just the math doesn't work. You need you need the market gains on your side. You need the six, seven, eight percent interest um, that the stock market gives you in order to retire. Retirement is the biggest expense of your life. You will roughly need to live as long as you worked for. You're probably going to work 30 to 35 years. Most likely, you probably need to save enough money in order to be able to live 30 to 35 years. So you have to start investing. And there are so many options out there that are going to make investing easy, um, that can teach you about investing. Of course, I'm talking about investing a lot. My favorite person talking about investing is my friend Amanda Holden, who runs Dumpster Dog Blog. Again, I'll send you a link that you can put in the show notes, but she has an amazing course called Invested Development, which is the best name in the world. <laughs> but she talks about investing. She worked in investment management for five years, made old rich white guys richer, and she was like, enough of this. So she has an amazing course about investing that I could not recommend more. And then I'm an affiliate of Elevest, which is a women-founded, women-focused investment platform. 
So they're what's called a robo-advisor where they take a small fee, about half a percent, in order to help you invest. So you give them whatever money you can, whether that's $5 or $5,000, and they counsel you and guide you through the entire process and do it for you based on your goals, based on how old you are, based on your gender, that sort of thing. So um, they're counseling you about how to invest, but they're also guiding you through the process so it doesn't seem as scary. Um, and again, there's so many resources out there. I'm a resource. There's a million women who are talking about investing and talking about growing your money. So you are not alone and we're here to help and support you. Now, there's like 10 different things that I want to get your quick tips on, but I think a good place to start is money mindset because I think sure. that's what needs to come first before everything, in, in my unexperienced opinion. So how can we improve our money mindset or how do we even get a clear idea of what our money mindset currently looks like? Yeah. Um, I launched uh, a course that I'm so proud of called master your money with my friend, Alexis Rockley, who's a positive psychology coach. Um, so it's closed again, as of this taping, but we're opening enrollment later this year. And, the magic of this course is we go into, of course, kind of the actionable side of money that I'm really good at um, talking about, you know, what child yield savings account and how to invest and how to budget and how to curb emotional spending. And then she really goes into like, why does our brain work in the way it does around money? <laughs> why, why do we self-sabotage? Why, um, why do we have a bad relationship with money and how can we start, you know, making goals and starting to repair that relationship? And one of the amazing things she has us do in that course she has us think about the first money memory that we have. So the first memory, whether that's from, you know, your childhood, sometimes it's maybe even your teenage years around money. For me, it was um, putting my spare change in an Altoids tin so I could go see Annie the musical. Like that's my first money memory because uh, I was a little theater nerd kid who really wanted to go see Annie. And so I remember saving up my money in order to go see it. Alexis's first money memory is her wanting to buy a camera and her basically putting like a slideshow together and pitching her dad as to why he should financially help her to buy this camera. And it's really interesting when you start realizing like what was the first narrative around money that you have in your mind? For me, it was saving money is important. For her, it was kind of like, almost her self-worth was tied to money. Like in order to prove that I'm worthy of this thing, in order to prove, you know, that, or I guess in order to get this money, I have to prove that I'm worthy of this thing. Um, and so just considering that can be really transformational around what was the narrative around money for you from, you know, from, right from the get-go. The other things to think about and in, in kind of my more actionable way, you hear a lot that people are either savers or spenders really, we are all spenders. Even me, who's like this kind of super saver, that 100K that I saved, I will spend that money. I will spend that money eventually. Again, if you're saving for a vacation next year, you will spend that money. And even in retirement, future me, 65-year-old me, will spend that money. So when you're thinking to yourself, God, how do I save money? It seems so far away or or, you know, it seems so arbitrary. Get really specific on what you're saving money for. Give it a purpose. And then tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to spend this money. It just might be in a year or it might be in six months or it might be in 35 years, right? 
I really want to give 65 year old me a kick-ass retirement. And I talk about this a lot on Instagram, but like I want 65 year old me to be sitting on a beach somewhere, drinking a Mai Tai, flirting with her Pilates instructor named Luca. And she has this cute little handbag and she's just like loving life. And I want to live my life like that at 25, right? I want to have a really kick-ass time as uh, a young adult. And I also want to make sure that I'm giving 65 year old me a kick-ass time too. So as soon as we start putting that in perspective, right, as soon as we start identifying what are our goals, where, how do we want to live our life and how do we use money as a tool to get there? It can be completely transformational. Do you think that people need to completely pay off their debt before they can start investing or saving? Mm. Um, that is on a case by case basis. But what I will tell you, the kind of uh, overarching answer is no. Typically, um, the order of operations that I talk about in all of my workshops is emergency fund first. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not start paying off your debt. That should be the number one thing you have is some sort of emergency savings. Then pay off your higher interest debt, which is typically your credit cards. And then after that's done, then we kind of start investing while paying down our lower interest debt, typically uh, things like a mortgage, a student loan, a car loan, that sort of thing. So um, I would say the only thing that trumps that order is if you get an employer match through your company. So if you have a 401k and your employer matches 3% of that, that's literally free money, right? Is if you contribute 3% and your employer matches 3%, you basically just contributed 6% without you having to do anything in addition. So I would make sure to get that free money if you have that as an option to you. Otherwise, our high interest debt definitely probably should be gone. I said definitely, probably. Again, it's completely it's completely arbitrary. I'd have to see all of your personal finance situation to, to really give you a good recommendation. But normally what happens is we want our higher interest debt gone because it's costing you more money than you could be making by investing. Now let's talk about budgeting. What are your budgeting tips and tools and, and how do we really know where we should be spending and where we shouldn't? Yeah, I have a personal finance 101 workshop where I cover curbing emotional spending, how to put a budget together, no apps, no spreadsheets required. This is the one I use in my own life and the one I recommend to clients, um, as well as all of the retirement account options, the financial priority list. We cover a lot in that workshop. So I'm not going to give everything away, but a couple actionable tips around budgeting. Um, I always tell people, you never have to stop spending money. You just need to stop spending money on shit you don't care about. So really what you need to do is you need to identify for your discretionary income, where are your three priorities in life? What are the three value categories, I call them? What are the three things you really love spending your discretionary money on? For me, that's travel, food out, and nesting. I like buying plants. I like buying candles. Basically, I spend a lot of money in the back aisles of TJ Maxx. So when I'm considering those three value categories, the majority of my discretionary money should go to those three things. I'm not really a coffee drinker. I don't buy a ton of makeup or clothes. Maybe you do. Maybe those are valuable to you. So that's the thing is like, we can afford pretty much anything. We just can't afford everything. So I spend the majority of my discretionary money on things that are going to give, give me the most joy, as opposed to trying to spend too much money on everything, trying to have everything, when really I only truly care about a handful of those things. So when you're approaching budgeting, when you're approaching figuring out what's valuable to you, think about 
how can I get the best return on investment for my money? If I'm going to spend my hard-earned money on something, I want to make sure that I get a lot of joy from it and that, you know, my money is going to a good place. So I want to also, so we've talked about not spending money and spending money in different categories and saving money. Let's talk about earning more money. What are your tips for negotiating salaries or negotiating raise? Yeah, I literally also have a workshop called Navigating the Negotiation where I talk about how to negotiate, whether that's for a salary increase or for a raise. Um, I used the script that I teach in the workshop to get 10% more in every job I've ever held. And I actually helped women get over $175,000 extra last year in negotiating. So um, a couple quick tips. I don't want to, again, give everything away. Um, the first thing is that negotiations are collaborations, not conflicts. Too many people walk into negotiations thinking like, okay, I'm going to have to brawl. I'm going to have to fight to the death, unsheath my sword, pull out my boxing gloves. And like, that's not a negotiation. That's a conflict. That's a fight. That's an argument. You are not on an opposing team with your employer or potential employer. You are actually on the same team working towards a solution to the problem of you not being compensated fairly. It's a collaboration, not an argument, not a fight. So that's the first kind of mindset reframe is that you need to make sure that you're coming into this with an open mind, with a collaborative mindset, as opposed to feeling like you're going to have to battle it out, right? The second thing is that research is super, super important. Make sure you know what you should be getting compensated at. If you don't know, if you don't know at this moment, there are so many resources online and in person to help you figure that out. Um, Salary.com, Payscale is my preferred platform online. Payscale is a Seattle company. They give you um, a more detailed salary analysis for free. Ladies Get Paid, again, is a great, um, is a great resource. Um, but have conversations with people as well, whether that's at your current company, if you feel like that's a trusted environment to do that, or go outside, go to people that you've met at networking events, go to people into your industry and talk about salary. Ask, hey, for this job description, does this seem like a good offer? Or, hey, based on what you know about me and my, you know, my qualifications, does this sort of offer make sense? So really do your research and make sure that you know what's happening going into a, to a negotiation. Make sure that you have those, those numbers and that data. And the final thing I'll say is that you're going to get asked about your salary in a job interview um, as that's just going to be a normal question. You know, it's going to be, where do you see yourself in five years? And then they're going to ask you, what are your salary expectations? Um, please do not give a number. Please, dear God, do not give a number because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you as cheap as possible, right? And let's assume you've been on the phone for 30 to 45 minutes for the first time or even the second time. You do not fully understand the scope of this role yet. So it's going to be really hard to price yourself accurately and chances are you're going to do it wrong. Chances are anybody would do it wrong. So what you're going to do is when they ask, what are your salary expectations? You're going to say something like, um, actually, I don't, I don't fully comprehend the full scope of the role yet, but I'd love to hear what your budget is, and I can tell you if that makes sense. Nine times out of ten, they'll give you, your, give you their budget so you don't have to give a number first, and then you can decide if that feels right based on what you've done in your market research. So please do not give a number first. Um, I, I would have missed out on tens of thousands of dollars had I give, given a number first because we tend to undershoot, undersell ourselves when it comes to our salary range. So please don't give a number first. I think unfortunately, as women especially, we just tend to, to undervalue our self-worth in general. Completely, yeah. So there's two more topics I'd, I'd love to get your advice on. Um, 
what tips do you have for lowering reoccurring bills? Yeah, I have a whole negotiation script that, again, I can send you to link in the show notes. Yes, I, definitely. I have saved a couple thousand dollars a year just by negotiating my bills down. But a lot of people don't know this. You can negotiate your cable bill, your phone bill. Um, you can negotiate actually your interest rate if you have uh, credit cards. That one tends to not work all the time, but um, I've seen it work. You can also negotiate any medical debt you have. You can negotiate that down. So yeah, I will send you a script to links. I, I, I don't want to go into all of it now because it's pretty lengthy, but really the, the key thing is to, is to allow the customer service reps an opportunity to keep you as a customer. You really want to highlight your loyalty. You really want to highlight, yeah, you know, I've been a, I've been a insert cable company here, customer for the last three years. And I'd really love to make sure that I can stay a customer of yours. What can you do for me? Or if you're not loyal to them, flip it, flip it on them and say, hey, I'd really love for you to earn my loyalty today, right? Because it's going to be five times more expensive for them to go out and find a new customer rather than retaining you. So yeah, that strategy is, is saved me thousands and thousands of dollars over the years just by having like a quick 15 minute, sometimes 30 minute phone call on my way to work. All right. And last topic what advice do you have for improving our credit scores? Yeah. Um, so your credit score is made up of a couple different things. The first is your credit history. That's how long you've had credit for, right? So that's when did you open your first credit card? When did you apply for your first loan? Um, that is your credit history. So let's say if you're 25 and you open your first credit card at 20, your credit history is five years long. So credit history is one of those things you can't really control. It's just kind of like whenever you got started um, and the longer the credit history, the better. So get started as soon as you can. The second part of a credit score is, are you paying bills on time and in full? Are you a responsible borrower? Um, again, are you paying your entire credit card balance, not just the minimum? Are you submitting that payment on time? Are you paying your student loans, your car payment on time, your mortgage, right? You need to make sure that you're paying those bills um, on time and in full. And the third aspect of a credit score is something that a lot of people don't talk about, which is called credit utilization. So let's say you have a $10,000 credit limit on a card. Your credit utilization is the percent of that credit line that you use. So let's say you're spending $8,000 um, on that credit card that allows you to spend up to 10. That means your credit utilization rate is 80%. We ideally want to be under 30%. In a perfect world, we want to be under 10%. So again, in this hypothetical example, if your credit card is offering you a $10,000 credit line, we want to be spending $3,000 or less on that credit card. So your total credit lines, maybe you have a couple different cards, maybe you have a couple different um, you know, ways you can spend money. That's your total credit line. We want to keep our total credit utilization under 30%, 10% if you can swing it. And assuming you don't use your increased credit line, you can actually call your credit card companies or go online or use their app to request a credit line increase. So let's say they increase you to now 15%, but you are, excuse me, 15,000 but you were, you know, you're continuing to only spend 3000 that means that your credit utilization rate just dropped, which is great for you and will give you a boost to your credit score. Yeah, I remember, I don't remember when, but I remember you mentioning on your Instagram stories that you don't use a debit card and I'd love don't. to know why. There's a bunch of reasons I don't use a debit card. Um, 
I, my parents actually don't have a debit card. So that's why I never started using one. Um, I don't like carrying cash. I just don't like it. Um, I have been lucky enough to never have to go into credit card debt. So um, I actually put everything on my credit cards. Not only, of course, does that give me miles or, or points or cash back. Um, so I'm utilizing credit cards in order to get all of that free stuff. But I'm also being able to track my purchases and um, like rebuke them, right? If something happens. So if uh, there's fraud on my card, if I get double charged for something, um, I, it's a lot easier to just flag that and have a credit card company handle it than it is should somebody, you know, get your pin for your debit card or something like that. Um, and I also just find, I just like the ease of use of that. A debit card for me seems a little risky. Um, if somebody hypothetically, again, gets your pin, you know, you could have all of your money withdrawn from your checking account. Um, and it's really hard to get back. It's really hard to track that. And so I, I would rather put all of, all of my spending on a credit card and then pay it off in full, than use a debit card. And Last, what are your favorite money tools? I know you've mentioned Elvest, but I also know from following you on Instagram that you've got a whole list of them. So I I'd do. love for you to share those. And again, I'll send you, I'll send you all the links for the show notes. Yes. But, um, CIT Bank is my preferred um, high yield savings account. I have been a customer of theirs for about a year and they're who I recommend. Um, I'm also an affiliate, so I do get a small kickback, but I'm that kind of person. I'm never going to recommend something that I don't believe in. Um, so LFS and CIT are, are my, my pick for investing as well as bank accounts. Um, I love Charlie to do um, tracking. It can be used as a budget tool, but using my budgeting method, you actually don't even need to use it as a budgeting tool, but it is a great way to track your money, basically to see where your money's going, how much you've spent in certain categories, that sort of thing. And then my final tool that I love, and that actually was the biggest tool in getting me to 100K is called Personal Capital. Um, it's basically a net worth tracker that, at its core. That's the free product. And then there's a bunch of other things that you can pay for. But um, your net worth is your assets minus your liabilities. And what I love about Personal Capital is that literally I can see my entire financial life in one spot. So I can see all of my investments, um, all of my credit cards, any debt that I have, my savings accounts, I can see it all in one spot. So I can go in and say like, oh, you know, what is my net worth or what are my total savings today? Or how much progress did I make towards paying off debt? That sort of thing. So um, that's my final tool that I, I recommend. But I have a bunch of others too that um, managing finances with a partner, all of these things that I can I can send over. Perfect. And where can we go to learn more about you, to work with you, and to earn our first 100K? Yes. Uh, come find me at Her First 100K uh, or HerFirst100K.com, H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T 100K.com. I always like to say I'm way cooler on Instagram. So slide <laughs> my DMs, come say hi, ask me, ask me some money questions. Um, and then I do workshops pretty much every month. So um, again, this is, yeah, this is coming out. We're taping this the day before I think it comes out. So we're doing, I'm doing a uh, negotiation workshop this, this weekend that actually has, still has some slots available. If you want to come say hi, I'm also doing that workshop again, a couple of different times in the spring. And then I have a personal finance 101 workshop that I do. Both workshops are live and uh, online. So you can tune in from anywhere and you get a free playback as well. And then I do coaching. I speak all over the country. But yeah, just come say hi. Let me know how I can help and support you. And this is my favorite thing in the world. So just honored, honored that I get to do it. 
Now it's time to take action. Be sure to visit herfirst100k.com to get more of Tori's free financial advice, join one of her online workshops, book a coaching call with her, or to start utilizing some of her favorite free money tools. If you know someone who'd enjoy the Hippie Haven podcast, share it with them. Or on social media, if you post on Instagram, don't forget to tag me too. I'm at Hippie Haven Shop. You can also support our work here at Hippie Haven by leaving a review for the podcast in whichever app you're using to listen, or you can buy me a virtual cup of coffee to keep me going. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Hippie Haven to support the work we do with just $4. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you have a great rest of your day.